90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. How about you? We're chugging along once again. <laughs> uh, it's been an interesting week. You know, we've, we use our laser uh, cutter and engraver for quite a bit of work. Okay. And uh, we've had, it, it, I would say it's sporadically used. It'll, it'll sit for a month and then it'll get used pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, with the shear boxes or the squeeze boxes that we talked about last week, uh, we needed to make a bunch of those uh, because several of our listeners purchased those. Yay. Uh, Yay. And so we're, we're, we're working on those. We're, we actually had two other jobs lined up as well. And the laser picked this week to completely die with a high voltage problem. Of course it did. Why would it not? I mean, why would it not? Yeah. So that is in the process of being fixed. And that is a a rather indicative sign of how things have gone this week. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Um, That sounds like, sounds like the magnetometer, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it. It, it works great as long as you don't need it. Correct. That is exactly It's the right. same principle that uh, trailer lights operate on. <laughs> Good thing they're not required everywhere, right? Right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, it's been, you know, it's been a week here. I mean, just doing the thing, right? It's about where we are. It feels like every week is the same at school, just like... No one knows what's going on. It's weirdly quiet. I don't know. It's a weird time to be inside an academic institution right now. So would you say that you're able to cleverly sense a a pattern in what's happening? (laughs) Uh, I would say that... Using all those neurons in your brain? That's right. (laughs) Oh, man. Um... Yeah, exactly. I feel like I'm just skittering from one place to the other, trying to make make human connections. <laughs> well, it sounds like uh, you're a neural network. Does sound like that, doesn't it? <laughs> that was a wonderful segue that I'm totally messing up for you, and I think it's real funny because <laughs> that's <laughs> basically how the rest of this conversation's gonna go. <laughs> Yeah, it was a tortured segue that you made more tortured. Exactly. Uh, And that is because you had the suggestion of talking. We've talked a little about neural networks in the past. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mostly in the context of rock identification from a photo is not going to work. (laughs) 100%. But But there's more to it. Exactly. So um, a lot of this is born from a lot of conversations that I've been having with current students and former students and some ideas about classes that I want to move forward on, um, which is, especially here in Oklahoma, you know, oil is going bye-bye, right? Sooner or later, it's going to happen no matter what. But definitely now and with the pandemic, I was just reading this article actually before we before we um, got together tonight that like, was it at the it says more than 100,000 U.S. oil and gas jobs have been lost just because of COVID-19. So Wow. Yeah. And it's like, 
the big oil companies in Oklahoma City are going away. And I was just thinking, like, what what's next, right? So a lot of students are like, what can I do? Because back when you went through, when I went through, you just, you came to OU because you wanted to be in oil. I mean, we didn't, but... We wanted to be meteorologists. Correct. Here we are. <laughs> exactly. Um, not talking about the weather. Thank you very much. Um, so students would just go through recruiting. And that's how I wound up in the oil industry for five years was like, I just went through recruiting because that's what everybody did. And almost everybody got a job. Um, but that's not the truth anymore. So what happens to geology now? You know, like geology has been around long before oil. So what kind of jobs can you get? And I know you teach a lot of classes that have to do sort of with machine learning, but it's like machine learning and big data. And I think we'll tackle big data at another time. But, like, what do you need to do to learn machine learning? And what does it do? Because I have these students who are like, okay, I have this great, they say, I have this, you know, great undergrad education, but I don't know what I can do with it. Like, what's a job that does this? And I feel like this word of machine learning gets thrown around a whole lot, maybe by people who don't necessarily know how to use it. But I wanted to talk... Generally, I would say, yeah. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) But like for geology specifically, what do you use it for? Like, where can I do quantitative stuff? You know, like, I, I guess just how can you use this in a job? And how do you go about like learning these skills to do it? Because heaven knows we're not teaching it in class because none of us know how to do it. <laughs> well, so... I think, you know, let's paint a dream scenario and we'll use oil and gas because I'm going to say that's probably the closest thing to big data, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. that we've got. Though we did have a listener email us specifically asking us to do a show on big data and it is coming. Oh, fabulous. That's great. That was yep. my other thing I was going to make you talk about tonight. But yeah. Okay, cool. We'll save so, that. <laughs> great. Uh, let's imagine that you are looking... You're trying to determine what's going on in this field. You're, you're assessing a potential new prospect. What we might want to drill here. Okay. And you're pulling some old well logs yes. that were drilled in that basin Great. 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you're looking through them. So now, switch. You know, you're at home and you're watching something on TV. And what happens when you finish a show on Netflix? Um, it just goes to something that you might like also. Right. It says you might also like this show because you've watched, mm-hmm. you know, because you've watched The Office and Community and Parks and Rec, you might also like <laughs> something else. <laughs> I don't know which one of us you're referring to, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so imagine if you had that for a well, you're looking at a well log and... As you're getting to the the end of that well log, it says, you might also like well 58-12. Ah, I see. Because you've looked at wells that have large deltaic sequences recently. (laughs) This sounds like the the crappiest new show ever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um. I will say that this works really well when I go into Web of Science and some of the, um, I don't know, I don't think it's Elsevier. 
it's another big publisher that gives me these things whenever I look up a paper and it says, you may also be interested in these papers. And then I spend two more hours reading stuff that I was, in fact, interested in. (laughs) Right. Because it did a very good job suggesting those papers to me. Yeah. So that is an application of machine learning. I never even thought about that. I never thought about that with that suggested papers thing. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that's how Amazon, Google, Netflix, that's how all of these companies suggest things for you. Okay. Um, I recently heard a, it was on, I, I can't remember if it was a podcast or just a show on public radio. Um, that was talking about how, okay, so machines are really good at learning these kind of trends, but they're not super good at, like, thinking like people yet, so that made me feel better about machine learning. Right, well, you know, friend of the show, Lisa White, uh, has often quoted the, the statistic, you know, a, a pretty advanced neural network has about as many neural connections as a jellyfish. Wow, really? Yeah. Yeah, but some jellyfish never die, and they just are immortal so <laughs> so i don't well, know I so like that. <laughs> the the example that i gave though of like you might also mm-hmm. like well x it's just one type of machine learning so there are lots of different you know there are problems of things like classification which would be looking at something and saying is this sandstone right uh, or there are continuous prediction things like given this well log you know, we had a we had an issue with with the gamma instrument, uh, and we're we're missing a section of the well log. Predict the missing data. Mm, okay. Uh, okay. So that's more of a continuous prediction exercise, not a classification exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are all and then there's you know supervised and unsupervised, which supervised is you give it some examples of. Here are what we call labeled data sets. Like, this is a sandstone. This is not a sandstone. This is not a sandstone. This is a sandstone. Right. Um, that's supervised. Unsupervised is where you just throw the data at it and say, there are some categories here. Group it. Oh. That sounds like that doesn't work very well. Uh, in some data sets, it works well, and it gives you interesting groupings. You know, sort of think of it as principal component analysis on right. steroids. Okay, yeah. Uh, But in a lot of cases, it doesn't work well. And this brings me to the first limitation of machine learning in geology. Mm -hmm. Machine learning, the entire goal is to get the highest correct score that it can. Okay. So we're training it to... Get the prediction right most of the time. Okay. So now imagine that I'm looking at a well log and I want the machine learning algorithm to predict, is this pay or not? Is there oil here or not? How much of the well log is pay? Like in general? Yeah. The entire like well log? My God. I Hopefully like 3%. <laughs> Yeah, if you're lucky, right? Yeah, something super, I would imagine it's very low if it it exists at all. Okay, so that means you can get 97% accuracy in a very good well by predicting not pay for the whole well. 
Ooh, that's rough. Right. So okay. machine learning is not necessarily oh, great yeah. at finding, especially if you don't have a lot of data for that. So imagine you feed it 100,000 wells. That's great. But if only 1% to 3% of the data from each of those wells is pay, mm. it's way under-trained on pay. Gotcha. Okay. Now, I mean, there are lots of techniques you can do to get around this. You can get fancy penalty functions and all kinds of things. But it is a fundamental limitation that it, it, it will game the system because it's just math. And the system is to get the highest number at the end. I think there's a Dan Brown book about this that I just read, too. <laughs> <laughs> it ends exactly like that. Wow, I never thought about that. Hmm. I know some geologists like that, too. But uh, Wow. Well, I mean, I, what are we interested in as yeah. scientists, right? It's always the stuff where you go, that's different. Uh-huh. Yep, exactly. Hmm. Okay. So that could be a problem then. That could be a problem. And there are all kinds of, there's some interesting techniques like um, change point detection where you can say, like, I want you to tell me if this is different. Not mm. what it is, but is it different? Okay. Uh, so that would be one strategy you could potentially use here. So you didn't, you never had to take paleontology, right? You did not take paleontology. I did not as a geophysicist, no. Okay. All right. I didn't think so. There's that very famous, and somebody's going to, correct me on this what is that so you have to do a cladogram which you know what that is right right um and so this little there's a you get all these weird little animal looking things and you have to make them like it was one of the first ones that we did in in class and I know it, this isn't specific to our class. These, they're these weird little animals. They, there's a name for them. They're not real animals. And you had to say, okay, so how are you going to make a cladogram of this? Like, cladogram, however you say it. You know, are you going to look at these ones that have two feet? Are you going to look at the ones that have two eyeballs? They all have different attributes. So how do you do it? That would be interesting to see. Surely somebody's done machine learning with that, right? Yeah, and so that would be called feature selection mm, in, okay. in machine learning lingo. Of, mm -hmm. So, okay, I've got a well log. Am I going to look at all the data? Well, if I've got 100,000 of them, no, because I have finite compute resources and I don't live forever. So <laughs> I need to select, okay, I'm going to look at the density log and the gamma ray log. Right. Or you can even do what's called feature engineering, which is if you don't have a lot of features, uh, you can start saying things like, I'm going to look at the density log, the gamma ray log, and then I'm going to look at uh, density times gamma ray square rooted. Or other nonlinear combinations of things to create a more dynamic feature space. Wow, that's interesting. So because not... some of those things, like, okay, you know, resistivity, it's not yeah. really, until you take the logarithm of, of it, it's not, it's not linear, and mm -hmm. nonlinear things are not necessarily that useful in machine learning. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. See, so the more I read about this stuff, the more I'm, or the, or the more I learn about it, the better I feel about machines not taking over my life anytime soon um, 
not worried about machine learning taking over at any time. Because <laughs> machines are actually kind of dumb. I mean, it's still, so you have all these options. You and you, st- so you still really have to know a lot about the system to be able to get anything out of it. So, <laughs> oh God, no, <laughs> not necessarily. Uh, to get anything useful out of it, <laughs> not even that. Um, oh no! Now, thanks to a lot of libraries out there, you know, it, I. I don't know how much of the audience is old enough to remember these commercials, but the Geico So Easy a Caveman Could Do It commercials. Yeah. Oh, surely all of the audience, right? Probably not. Um, okay. <laughs> so there are a lot of libraries out there that make machine learning so easy a caveman can do it. Like here's a black box and you dump a bunch of data in the funnel at the top and a bunch of things come out the bottom and what those things are, well, that's interesting. Oh my goodness. Okay. Or, you know, it makes it very easy to say, here's my data. Go try six different machine learning algorithms on it and see what happens. Tell me which one did best. And if you've got the compute resource to do it, yeah, why not? Uh, So you don't have to understand what's going on to do it. That being said, you probably should if you're going to use it in any professional context. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. So don't believe it in any master's theses, but. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Hmm. How do you even start doing this? Like, what do you need to do to do this? Um, A laptop in Python. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, SK Learn is a fantastic. There's a really good book, uh, Machine Learning in Python. Uh, it's uh, Sarah Guido and uh, Andreas, I believe, wrote it. It's very, very good from an introductory standpoint, and then mm-hmm. showing you how to use the Python library as well. Okay. Uh, there are lots of other libraries. You know, there's Keras and TensorFlow and Torch and. Uh, Facebook has one called Profit, uh, spelled <laughs> okay. like P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Oh, my goodness. Gotcha. Uh, that they use for time series prediction. And these are all things that you can just go out there and, you know, pip install. Wow. And then you've got them. Okay. Man, that's very powerful. Hmm. Hmm. But I will say, you know, nine-tenths of the machine learning is the data preparation. Well, yeah, that's the whole garbage-in, garbage-out business, right? Right, yeah. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Because, I mean, for each of those things that you were talking about, like the different ways to use it, I mean, yeah, you want to have your ducks in a row before you start doing it so you get something that is meaningful. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. And yeah. if you want to see why machine learning is not going to take over the world, uh, AIWeirdness.com. That's the one. Okay. Yes. I saw an interview with, this is the the woman that runs this blog, right? Because this has been around for a long time. Yeah. The blog's been around uh, for a while. Uh, Janelle Shane is her name. And she also wrote the fantastic book, You Look Like a Thing and I Love You. 
Yep, that's okay. This was the one that I, yeah, this was the one that I was talking about. She was just interviewed on NPR. And so, yes. This She's is what also made been me... interviewed on embedded.fm. So, big plug, go over there oh, and check that interview out. Oh, seriously. Oh, yes. I'm totally going to because this was she was fantastic. This is very interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh <laughs> and uh you know, she has articles on feeding machine learning algorithms ben and jerry's ice cream flavors and getting it to come up with its own and they got <laughs> raunchy real quick uh, <laughs> or you know she just had one on uh, microsoft flight simulator just released a new version it sold mm-hmm. like more gaming hardware than any other software release ever are you serious yeah and uh, oh. it uses ai to fill in you know, okay, a major city like Chicago, they're going to go in and hand tweak to make sure everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it uses AI to fill in other things based on sparse data that's put in and satellite photos and that kind of thing. Oh, and uh, no. there are a lot of monoliths out there in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like there was a typo that resulted in a 212-story building in the middle of a flat part of Melbourne. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, that's funny. A, a 20, one of my favorites. Oh, no. There is an ice cliff that, you know, where there's calving out into the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the top to the bottom is 20,000 feet. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I was just looking it up. There's one that says there's a huge chasm with an airport at the bottom of it. <laughs> yeah, and there's like this big anomaly up at the North Pole, too. Oh, this is so funny. I because I remember playing Flight Simulator for hours and hours in the in the eighties. So um, it was so hard, and I thought I'll never be a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I crashed that thing so much, and there was like this huge book with all these instructions. <laughs> um, that is really fun. Okay, yeah. Um, Yes, so when I read a bunch of her blog, yeah, it just made me feel definitely a lot better um, about machine learning. But also, it just, it feels like something that is thrown around all the time. Yeah, we'll use machine learning on this. And it's like, I mean, yeah, what what does that mean? I feel like people are using it. It's like when people talk about students and they say, students are digital natives. They know how to run this stuff. And it's like, no. No, they don't. <laughs> you know, like college students know how to Facebook and barely Twitter, right? And that's it. They don't understand how to use. So that's why we had a whole program on Google Foo, right? Um, <laughs> right, because if it's an app, they're used to using it. That's what they've grown up with, but they're not used to using the computer in the more traditional sense. Right, yeah. And and I feel like a lot of people in geology are like, oh, yeah, machine learning's where it's at. And it's like, what does that do? And they're like... You know, does stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, that's like the equivalent of a geologist in an oil company saying, yeah, let's just go shoot seismic. <laughs> like, unless you know what you want to get from it, you're not going to get anything very useful. <laughs> that happens all the time, though. <laughs> I mean, oh, yes. There are countless the roving, vibersized trucks making mm-hmm. lots of data that is 
not actually that useful. Yes. Yeah, that's 100% true. Um, okay, so those were some... Those were some data or um, petroleum uses for machine learning. I mean, I guess you could do this with anything. I'm trying to think of like what an example of some kind of sedimentological data you would use. Machine well, okay, so with. what about PMAG? Like I'm going to feed uh, raw PMAG data. And so I, basically I'm going to feed a Ziderfeld plot in. Right, mm-hmm. Tell me the magnetic history of this rock. Yeah. That'd be really interesting. Now, the, a lot of the tests that you use to do that when you're processing the data are statistical, and machine learning is code for I use statistics but don't understand it. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it might actually get somewhat similar results. Uh, I thought PMAG was code for I use statistics but don't understand it. Random number generators aren't statistical. <laughs> well, okay, that's not true either. But exactly, <laughs> I got some stats that'll back that up. <clears throat> uh, wow, that's creepy. You weren't supposed to turn this on me. Like I could use my data with machine <laughs> learning. I didn't think that was a thing. Hmm. But also, machine learning. So I reviewed an abstract years ago, not in our field, not in geology at all. Mm-hmm. So any parties out there that have submitted machine learning, this wasn't you. <laughs> um, where they really just took some data and fit a line to it in Excel. And the title of the paper was like, Using Machine Learning to Analyze Blank Blank Correlation of Blank. Okay. And they're not wrong. It is the most buzzwordy possible to say I used a linear regression. Yes, Yes. Uh uh-huh, yeah, and we've talked about that a lot. (laughs) But they're not wrong. Uh, Linear regression is machine learning. It's a statistical understanding of data set by a machine without a priori knowledge. Hmm. And really, a lot of machine learning is nothing more than highly dimensional versions of that. Yeah, yeah, wow. This is all, I'm, I feel fairly speechless because this is all illuminating, really. And I'm not trying to <laughs> simplify people's lifetimes of research because, yes, there is more to it than that. Uh, and a but lot it, of these newer techniques are things like we're going to fit, and, you know, as a meteorologist, this will sound familiar, we're going to fit an ensemble of lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or an ensemble of, in this case, hyperplanes mm-hmm. to all of this high-dimensional data. And what's the probability of the answer to these inputs being this? Yeah. And that's where it gets a lot more interesting to me. Because yeah. then you start leaning Bayesian. Yes. Yeah. And that's weird stuff that we could talk a whole other show about. <laughs> Hmm. Or, I mean, you know, can, can you use traditional statistics to talk about the Earth? I mean, strictly no. I mean, how many Earths do we have? Yeah. One. That's true. N equals one. You don't have statistics. I mean, unless you want to use it through time and then... N no, equals. no. How many of the exact same earthquake occur? Okay. Yeah, you're correct. 
one. <laughs> like, that is correct. It, gotcha. Strictly speaking, it does not work. Ah, that's, <laughs> ah, that's very interesting. Hmm. That's weird. So, you know, is the earth, is it valid to use traditional statistics or do we have, have to use things like Bayesian? Wow. Um, that's a whole other debate that's been yeah, raging for a long got, time. Oh, that's got really philosophical really fast. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> hmm. As, uh, as my capstone uh, meteorology person, uh, you know, once said, he's like, if you, if you want to know why X and Y happens, like, look at physics. If you want to know why this happens, look at mathematics. He goes, but if you want to know why F equals MA, you're going to have to talk to your priest. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I don't even know what else to say. This is very, this is stuff that I never thought about when I thought about machine learning because I just thought about it as this buzzwordy thing, but hmm. That's very, that's very interesting. Is the majority of the classes that you teach, are they interested in this machine learning business? Yes. Uh, sometimes it is, you know, we're going to do like, okay, so Facey's prediction from a well log is the reason I pick on that as an example is because if you ask somebody coming into one of these classes, like, what do you want to do? That's always their answer. Right. Yeah, exactly. And they just don't want to do it because it's so repetitive. <laughs> and, you know, if you say, okay, if the problem was simple enough that after a week-long class you could solve it, it would be solved and there would be a commercial piece of software. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are commercial pieces of software with yeah. varying levels of success. Correct. But it's not something that, except for the most trivial of problem, it's not something that you're going to swoop in after reading an intro book and solve to a ridiculous level of precision. Mm-hmm. You need to be a professional. You do not need to be a professional to play with it, to get an understanding of it, and even to apply it to problems. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't think you're going to swoop in and solve it perfectly. Yeah. Just like you would not say, you knew you would not fire up Excel and say, I'm going to fit a line to this data and predict it perfectly. Nobody right. would say that. Correct. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's true. Um. You know, to me, I, that's that's where it stands. And I think, like, a lot of people might be like, oh, machines are going to take our job because of machine learning. But, I mean, this is all you have to do is read this AI weirdness blog to say that, no, because you still need someone behind it shaping it. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you know, we've, we've talked to people. I, I think a fantastic use of machine learning. And this is also being done out in... I'm not going to say the energy industry, but it's being done out in industry at large. Uh, there are things that you can buy to like, say you've got a huge motor in, in a factory of some kind. And I mean mm-hmm. large, uh, where if it fails, it's a very expensive, potentially uh, hazard to, to life and property situation. Okay. I mean, so some of the plants we go in, I, the biggest motor I've seen so far is 800 horsepower. Okay. Uh, massive, massive motor. Mm-hmm. You can strap something like an accelerometer onto it, 
and use machine learning to say, hey, something is different. There might be preventative maintenance coming up on this. You might have a bearing going out. There might be a shaft oh, seal. Something wow. is wrong. Okay. Now, imagine if you didn't have machine learning. What's going to happen? You're going to run it until somebody That's hears a noise <laughs> or until nobody hears the noise and it blows apart. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Okay, so now you've got the machine learning. Let's say the machine learning has an 80% prediction accuracy. Mm-hmm. That means there's only a 20% chance that you're going to run this thing till it blows apart. Yeah. Like, it could still happen, but would you not do it? Yeah, exactly. That's totally worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, okay, on the flip side of that, uh, okay, so machine learning is used in self-driving cars there's a very different set of consequences to 20% of the time being wrong when you come up to a stoplight. <laughs> yes. Yes, there is. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think you have to examine the problem, what the data is. I mean, can you find many, many, many examples of stoplights, different stoplights, different colors in different lighting conditions? Yeah, you bet. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can train that thing like crazy. How many examples can you find of 800 horsepower motors with a rear bearing failing? Yeah. Probably not a lot. Mm-hmm. That is true. Hmm. I mean, it's still more than you would think, but <laughs> but not a lot. <laughs> not as many as there are stoplights. <laughs> right. Huh. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So, I don't know. I think I would rather leave it on a positive note after uh-huh. <laughs> the last time we talked about machine learning and it turned into... Uh, you know, old man yells at clouds. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, well, that, that was super enlightening. Yeah, that was just like a sort of primer to someone who, you know, just hears people talk about it but hasn't done anything and also imagines most of the people that I hear talking about it also don't know what it does. So, <laughs> And we should... At some point, you know, totally talk about what random forests are and all this other, some of these more advanced things. Oh, yes. Um, And also, I mean, I have seen some applications of machine learning where, yeah, I'm not surprised it works really well. If you have something that, uh, okay, let's say you've got a hose on a piece of equipment and that hose pretty reliably fails every 2,000 hours of operation. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. If if you make something that predicts between nineteen hundred and twenty one hundred hours a failure, of course it's gonna work great. You know, so does a right. so does a chronograph. Yeah. Yeah. Is that your fancy thing for saying watch? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, or a timer, like a an hour right. timer. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, well, with that, you know, I think mm. this uh, this next segment mm. might point to some machine learning as well, because ah, it's time for Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Okay. <laughs> so, I teach this Earth-Fast Climate class. I know we've talked about a bunch of it before, and um, the professor I teach it with is also the director of the school now, and so she has abdicated many of her lectures to me and I teach more of the class than I used to and one of the lectures she <laughs> it's abdi- very diplomatic wasn't it phraseology 
<laughs> Thank you. Just in case she's listening. <laughs> um, and one of the, oh, I'm sorry, I can't keep it out of my voice any longer. One of the lectures that I got was isotopes. And we all know how I feel about chemistry. <laughs> and isotopes are hard to explain. And I think hard to like think about sometimes when you're talking about like carbon and oxygen isotopes. And so this was something that I just ran across when I was um, crossing, looking at isotope explanation YouTube videos and paleoclimate proxies. <laughs> yes, you heard it. Your professor watches YouTube videos too. <laughs> to profess. Uh, yeah, shout out to Callan Bentley's really great video <laughs> on isotopes that I, <laughs> that I definitely watched before I came <laughs> Um, I told everyone that I did that, <laughs> but it's true. We, you don't know everything, right? Yes. Nobody correct. does. And it's super nice to hear a professor say that, I think, because very frequently I've never had a professor that said that really. And since we had the same professors, maybe you didn't either. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so it's really nice to know. I think it makes us look more human, right? Um, so yeah, I watched that YouTube video. It was super good. <laughs> And told me a little bit about isotopes, but we talk also a lot about climate proxies, obviously. And so I found this EOS article that was five weird archives that scientists use to study past climates. Which, first off, let me say, AGU, shame on you for listicle clickbaiting. <laughs> but I found it, though, so, you know. <laughs> it does, though, have links to all five papers or research groups doing yes, this which is super nice because lots of these other articles where we find these things do not at all and i will say some of these are really weird but there were two in particular that were super cool plus this last picture which is amazing so yeah you might say well we can get climate records from trees or ice cores or stalactites, stalagmites in caves. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, you don't get all of those things everywhere. Mm -hmm. right. And generally where you're really interested is where something, again, it's where the anomalous thing happened, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> this is all, oh, I really want to know what happened here, except there was a big volcano and there are no trees. Yeah. <laughs> right exactly um but not surprisingly these five things also work in the exact same way that all those things you listed are right is it's something where you have essentially continuous deposition because that's what you're looking for to get a high <laughs> fidelity <laughs> are you laughing about this <laughs> yes a high fidelity record is you want something that's continuously depositing over a length of time and then you can basically look at its isotopes so, uh, which one was your favorite? <laughs> Poop. Poop <laughs> is raining from the ceiling, as Angela Martin would say. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and this poop is not people poop. It's bat guano. Which and... was, consequently, the time I remember when I was a child being the most embarrassed, because I rarely get embarrassed, um is that my dad and I were in Alabaster Caverns, which is a cave in, like, the armpit-ish area of Oklahoma. And <laughs> the person giving the tour said that this whole wall was covered in guano. And to me, it just looked like a rock. And I, I think I was, like, eight or nine, somewhere around there, seven or eight. 
And so I touched it and the whole tour laughed at me. <laughs> and I was like, what did I do? And I remember hiding behind my dad and him saying, Shannon, that was bat poop. I was like, oh God, I'm going to die. <laughs> That's my guano story. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, I'm real disappointed that you they don't have a picture of a core of guano though. Yeah, so they do have this picture of these researchers standing by a pile of bat poop taller than they are. Yeah, like by far taller. That's gross. Uh, and so here's, here's the mechanism. Um, you get microbes. This process happens now. They take atmospheric nitrogen and they, they fix it. And it, it's in the soil. And then plants take that nitrogen in. They grow. Bugs eat the plants. And the bats eat the bugs. And then the bats poop what's left of the bugs out. <laughs> so the nitrogen that goes from the soil to the plants, the plants absorb the lighter isotope more readily. And the heavier isotope is also, or, or sorry, the, the lighter isotope is washed away by the rain. The plants right. would preferentially absorb, but the lighter isotope is washed away by the rain. So based on how much heavy nitrogen or N15 there is, they can determine how much precipitation there was around that area because that gets transferred to the soil, to the plants, to the bugs, to the bats, to the poop. That's crazy. And crazy that you can preserve that isotopic signature through that amount of fixing. <laughs> yes, and that, so you're looking at thousands of years record length here. Yeah. Not, yeah. not incredible, but... No. But thousands of years. And high fidelity, right? Because there's a lot of poop. Yeah, yeah. I worked real hard to make some kind of fecaldality joke, and I, I couldn't I couldn't quite get there. <laughs> well, don't strain yourself too hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I like... Well... I like the last one, but I think I like the next one that's actually in the article, um, is Roman aqueducts. Yeah. So mm -hmm. <laughs> the Romans yeah. had hard water, luckily for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so there's the word center, which is not the way that I had used that word before. Um, S-I-N-T-E-R. Right. Uh, so this center precipitates... In these aqueducts, right? It's just calcium deposits. You're exactly right. It's just hard water. And it just deposited over time, right? These aqueducts are everywhere. Um, and depending on if it's warm or it's cold, you fix different oxygen isotopes into that calcium carbonate, right? So you get heavier oxygen, so O18 um, in when you have less water evaporated, so when it's cold, because there's a lot of O18 in the water, but when it's warm, everything gets taken out. And so you would have a higher concentration of O16 in that case. Um, yeah, so you can tell warm or cold based on the deposition of these, yeah, scaly deposits <laughs> in the Roman aqueducts. And some of them, they said, were really thick. That's crazy yeah these sections though oh, gross. again geologists the two photos from the roman aqueducts here have zero scale reference 
That is none. Very disappointing, I will say. I can't tell if it's an inch or three feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none at all. Because I have no reference point for how wide an aqueduct is. And I shouldn't have to go look it up. <laughs> you should be able to use a coin, a pocket knife, or a hail ruler. Uh, <laughs> you're going to fix them. Um, the next one doesn't have a scale really either. I mean, it does, but who knows how long that scale is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a white bar with no label does not count as a scale either, folks. Uh, <laughs> a white bar. <laughs> bar for scale. <laughs> and that one is snail shells, which I'm not going to say I was surprised by, but I also was Okay. Eh, on. So, I think the difference here is well, this is just what I figured out. Um is that we don't use a lot of terrestrial shells to do this stuff with, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Or maybe this is more of a popular science article. But, I mean, shells are one of the main things that we use oxygen and carbon isotopes for. Right. So, yeah. The only thing I could think of is these are, like, terrestrial snails. Because at the end, this is where it's interesting, they talk about using snails... <laughs> They get find these piles of snails near ancient human dwellings because humans have eaten escargot forever, I guess. Gross. Hey, have you? No. Have you? Yes. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> I am so surprised by this, says the man who only eats <laughs> chicken tenders <laughs> and sometimes fish and chips. <laughs> And hamburgers and pizza. There are two other food groups. <laughs> and you had escargot. Did it accidentally find its way onto a chicken strip? <laughs> it's meat. Oh. But gross. I, I would rather eat snail than a salad. <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think my... Family of John's would also say the same thing. <laughs> yep. Uh, again, reference, you know, C. Ron Swanson, Parks and Recreation. That's <laughs> basically my thoughts. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, was Though, it gross? I mean, did it taste like anything? Was it just... No, nah, it was salty, buttery, kind of squishy, slimy. Yeah, wasn't bad. Wasn't great. The way I had it prepared was very good, I thought. I, I like any kind of meat swimming in butter, so. You know, that's interesting, because yep. now that you say that, I do have a recollection that maybe I have eaten a snail, but it was a lot of butter. Mm. Mm -hmm. Could have been a scallop, though. They're all the Oh, same. yeah. Yeah, another another uh, meat. All the same. Is good swimming in butter. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. Um yeah, so I, this one was, yeah, not surprising, but that's the only thing I can think of. And they were talking about using, um, giant, again, I would have liked the, the scale because they're talking about using, what are they called, giant African, invasive giant African land snails. <laughs> How, to me, these things should be like two meters across. Exactly, which they might be by this picture. I don't know. <laughs> Is that a meter stick? <laughs> there on that white bar <laughs> like because 
there's three, you know, progressively larger shells. Um, yeah, I don't know. So they were trying no. to, they saw rainfall, like um, they saw monsoonal circulation in them. I guess that's something that hasn't yeah. been done. So hmm. I don't know. Though I will say the one of these that was the weirdest to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> was uh, the the whale earwax, the mm-hmm. the earplugs that they collect from from dead whales. That's and gross. they said it's like a sediment core or an ice core. Oh, God bless. <gasps> this is um, so weird. <laughs> though I didn't see how this one. So this one's complicated by the fact that the whales move. And mm-hmm. so they said, okay, well, more more carbon-13 in the earwax says that the whale is in colder water. Mm-hmm. I, okay, so... How much of that's climate? How much of that is the whales are moving to colder waters seasonally? Or, but they did start seeing decadal scale trends, mm-hmm. which overshadow the seasonal or yearly trends. Uh, it was a pretty right. short history, though. I mean, you know, hundreds of years. Right. Uh, and the number of samples is relatively small. They were able to get twenty earplugs uh, from museums in the United States and the United Kingdom. That's so weird. Hmm. It is. That one was super weird. Uh, so the last one, not as weird, but it is a little bit weird because it's using silicon isotopes, which is not something we always use. But the coolest thing. Yeah, I mean, are they are they doing this on Horta or what here? Yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> I don't... This picture is unbelievable to me. Yes. (laughs) Like, this is an unbelievable picture. So, when we look at silica in the rock record, and so many times, and if you work on carbonates at all, like, you'll get some silica in your carbonates, and everybody's always like, oh, it's sponge spicules, sponge spicules. It's just a thing that we say all the time. Okay? That silica (laughs) is from sponge spicules. It's like saying crinoid. Yeah, Yeah, basically. Yeah, that... That um, oh, there's a type of chert. It's this weird chert habit that's all sponge spicules. And there is a woman standing and holding a single 2.7 meter long sponge spicule. Yes, that was recently recovered. I think there's about 2,100 feet depth or something like that. Yes, uh, 2,100 meters. Or meters. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I forgot we're we're in science land. That's right. <laughs> um this is crazy that's nuts i want to see this sponge hmm. yeah so when you've got this you know it's obviously been growing for a while and uh they're saying you can get you know, 18 20,000 years out of these and so the actual mechanism of this was really sort of interesting and i think i'm gonna have to actually read this paper to think a little bit more about it because Productivity is a huge deal in terms of carbon isotopes, right? And it's in terms of also the carbon cycle because productivity in the oceans, taking the carbon out of the air and these little guys in the oceans using it photosynthetically or whatever and then dying, it's it's a carbon sink, right? It takes it from the short term to the 
long-term carbon cycle and the long-term carbon cycle is putting it into rock. And so it's talking about when these diatoms that are floating around, right? Diatoms are these little things that have silica shells floating around in the water column. They use that silica to build their shells and they're also, they're little photosynthetic organisms, right? So they're taking up that carbon and they die and their silica and carbon sinks to the ocean floor. And that's the carbon sink part of it. But then these huge sponges <laughs> use that, these deep sponges use that silica from the diatoms to build those 2.7 meter long spicules. And so the availability of that silica changes over time based on the amount of productivity. So whether there are a lot of diatoms dying or not. And that, that's a really interesting feedback mechanism and a way to look at silica as a proxy sort of for carbon in terms of productivity. That one was the most, this one was the most interesting to me. Right. So for the, the double E's that somehow stumbled in here from other podcasts, uh, <laughs> it, it's a phase lagged low pass filter for silica in the, in the earth. Correct. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> but that's weird. That's a weird thing. It is. It's a very odd, odd mechanism. Yeah, because it's like we're re usually just looking directly at carbon or oxygen, but it's one that seems legit. Right. So, and also that sponge figure is terrifying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, there you go. There's some weird paleoclimate, uh, you know, proxies for you, I guess. Yeah, well, if you would like to send us your feedback on different uh, paleoclimate indicators that you found, <laughs> or any other feedback you've got, we'll share your top listener feedback, you won't believe number three, <laughs> in a, a future episode. <laughs> Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. Uh, you can come to the Slack chat room. I was in there the other day again. <laughs> and you can find us on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. Uh, thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. Right, and until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.